an online article titled, Some Christian Pastors Embrace Scientology, grabbed my attention. Let me read just a little bit. Some Christian congregations, particularly in lower income urban areas, are turning to an unlikely source for help, the Church of Scientology. Now, Scientologists don't worship God, much less Jesus. Uh, the church has seen much controversy, if you follow it in the newspapers a little bit. Critics consider it a cult. So why are observant Christians embracing some of its teachings? Two pastors who spoke with CNN for that article explained that when it comes to religion, they will preach the core beliefs of Christianity. But when it comes to practicing what they preach in a modern world, borrowing from Scientology helps. The article went on to highlight these two pastors who were doing this. It said, as men of God rooted in Christian values, they do not see Scientology as a threat to their faith, but rather as a tool to augment it. One of the pastors from Tampa, Florida, said he knew that before he could introduce any Scientology-related text to his congregation, he would have to prove that it did not contradict his Christian beliefs. And so he found scripture to match each of the 21 principles found in one of the Scientology books. And now this pastor uses the book as a supplement to his sermons. The article says he believes it is easier to understand and clearer to follow than ancient scriptures taken from the Bible. There's a fancy word for what these pastors and many others in the Christian world are doing. It's called syncretism. Webster's Dictionary defines syncretism as the combination of different forms of belief or practice. So what we're seeing is that people are trying to be open-minded. Uh, they're harvesting what they consider to be the best of a variety of belief systems, of religions, of philosophies. And so they embrace a conglomeration of ideas, seeking to harmonize and to unite these different views about thought and religion. It, it isn't necessarily an abandonment of Christianity but it's an addition to, it's a complement to. And in so doing, they aren't always denying Christ, but what they're doing is they're dethroning Christ. They're robbing him of the preeminence to which he alone deserves. In the second century of Christianity, the greatest challenge of syncretism was the philosophy of Gnosticism. And we've seen already in our study of the Apostles' Creed how the early church leaders were having to address the faulty heretical view of these Gnostics who denied that God, who is spirit, could have anything to do with the material world, for the material world was evil. And that's why the Creed opens as it does. So let's, let's begin this morning and let's see how you did on your assignment. I'm probably going to let you cheat here. Uh, you were to memorize the first part of the creed that we've looked at so far in the last two weeks. So are you ready? Here we go. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. 
Now today we come to the heart of the creed's statement about Jesus. Why do I say it? Well, I say the heart because it speaks of the purpose for which God became a human being. It speaks about the redemptive plan of God, a plan that had its origins within the council of the Godhead before God ever created the universe. And so the next statement in the creed has to do with Jesus and suffering. And it says, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, I don't know whether you've thought about that at all, but it's interesting to me that it's something that the early church leaders chose to include in this statement of belief, statement of fact. I'm not sure that if you or I were writing a creed, we would say he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, after Jesus was arrested, you'll remember he was taken before the high priest and members of the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of Israel. It was comprised of the chief priests and the scribes. Now, they had no authority to execute capital punishment without Roman approval, and so they send Jesus to appear before Pontius Pilate, who is the governor of the southern half of Palestine. Now, Pilate was a very proud, cruel person. Above all, he was dedicated to his self-interest, preserving his standing before the Roman emperor. He hated the Jews, and, and he sought to continue their subjugation to Rome. And we see in the gospel accounts that Pilate tried to do everything he could to get rid of the case. He didn't want a thing to do with this itinerant teacher who had caused such a ruckus. He wanted to avoid having to make a decision of the fate of this man. Three times, when you read the gospel account, three times he said he could find no fault in Jesus. A side note here, interesting, isn't it, that Peter denied Jesus three times, and three times Pilate declared Jesus innocence? What an interesting intersection of those two. But in the end, Pilate gave in to the mob's cries for Jesus' death. Look at Luke's account from Luke chapter 23. A third time, he, that is Pilate, said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And so he was turned over to the authorities to be flogged, whips that had bits of metal and stone in the end that would literally rip the flesh off you. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And then the creed says that Jesus was crucified. The Romans who employed crucifixion extensively put Jesus to death. Now here's the deal. It was a real death. Jesus really died. Jesus who was declared to be the eternal son of God, God in the flesh, died. And this affirmation countered the teaching of the Gnostics who denied that Jesus could have been God and suffered physical death. And so here again, they're going after the heresy of the day. Jesus, God in the flesh, suffered and died for you and for me. That's an amazing thought. As we're entering into Passion Week, something to think about. The sinless Christ dying for the sinless you and me. And what's most amazing about this? It was God's plan all along. It was his idea before he even created the world knowing that human beings would choose to disobey. 
Look at Peter's comments that he gave in a sermon in Jerusalem at Pentecost, right after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. He said this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. One question that's often asked, who's responsible for Jesus' death? Certainly you could say that the Jews were complicit. You certainly have to say that the Romans had the hand in, in this whole thing. But we have to understand that behind it all is a God who loved us so much that he gave his son who willingly died for you and for me. The judgment that you deserve because of your sin fell upon Jesus. The punishment that should have been yours, should have been mine, instead was paid for Jesus in his suffering and death. And in Christ, we are set free from the law of sin and death. So we need to understand this is the depth of God's love for us. Helmut Tillichy, who is a German theologian, particularly in the last half of the, of the past century, writes in his book, I Believe the Christian's Creed, the showdown came at Gethsemane and Golgotha when guilt, suffering, and death began their painful encirclement. He could have broken out. He could have been spared all that humiliation just by the wave of his hand. But although it was possible for him to do it, that hand never moved. Instead, he let himself fall, living and dying into the hands of his father. He loved literally until it killed him. For that reason and for that alone, we have the unbelievable chance to count on God's loving us, knowing us, remaining true to us, and never abandoning us. We cannot find deeper truth than that in how much God loves us and what he's done for us. The creed continues to talk about Jesus in his death. The creed says that Jesus was dead and buried. You know what? You do not bury live people. Jesus was really dead. And his body was taken down off the cross and put into a borrowed tomb. Isn't it interesting that God even thought about that, providing a resting place for Jesus' body? Luke tells us in chapter 23 of his gospel, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, the creed goes on, and we have the most interesting and probably most debated portion of the creed next. He descended into hell. The Bible tells us very little about Jesus' state between his death and his resurrection. The passage that many Bible scholars think is most central to this statement in the creed comes from the letter of 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at this. For Christ also died for sins once for all, 
the just for the unjust, that he might bring us back to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedience, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, do you understand that? I didn't think so. Robert Mounts, in his commentary, Living Hope, says this passage is, quote, widely recognized as perhaps the most difficult to understand in all of the New Testament. That's quite a statement. Most of the commentators that I have read all agree with that. It's a difficult passage. This statement in the creed was apparently added later. But we don't have the benefit of the notes that show us their reasoning or, or, or why they put this in or, or what's the basis for its inclusion. John Calvin, writing in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, published in 1536, though, notes, this much is certain, that it reflected the common belief of all the godly. For there is no one of the fathers, that is, of the early church leaders, the early church fathers, who does not mention in his writings Christ's descent into hell, though their interpretations vary. Beginning in October, we're going to spend two months in the letter of 1 Peter. And when we come to this passage in chapter 3, we're going to dive in and look at some of the different ways that people are interpreting that. And, and then you can choose what you like best. Um, for now, though, let's consider another perspective, another way of looking at this phrase based on what we do know in the scriptures. Uh, Calvin calls this the descent into hell as an expression of the spiritual torment that Christ underwent for us. And so he writes, if Christ had died only a bodily death, it would have been ineffectual. No, it was expedient at the same time for him to undergo the severity of God's vengeance, to appease his wrath and satisfy his just judgment. For this reason, he must also grapple hand-to-hand -hand with the armies of hell and the dread of everlasting death. In other words, Jesus was put into our place to receive the judgment of God that should have rightfully fallen on you and on me. And so Jesus bore our punishment. He suffered the, the, the wrath of God that he must, out of his holiness and justice, apply to sin. And so the point of this statement in the creed, Calvin says, speaks of that invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he underwent in the sight of God in order that we might know not only that Christ's body was given as the price of our redemption, but that he paid a greater and more excellent price in suffering in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. Jesus himself seems to be fully aware of what was coming, what awaited him in his suffering and death. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 5 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the anguish in his soul as he's facing what was lying ahead for him that he knew was coming. 
And so in Luke 22, we read, And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. How in the world do we even begin to understand that? To relate to that? Why was Jesus willing to do that? Why was he willing to face what he faced? Why was he willing to go through the agony and the suffering and the pain and not only death physically, but he went through a spiritual death of being, of being um, abandoned by God. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a symbol of the darkness that came over the land as God the Father, and I'm speaking in human terms here, it's the only way that you can, that God the Father turned his back on his eternal son, first and only time ever that it would be done for all eternity, past or future. Jesus himself spoke of the reason why he was going to go through this. Only a short time before his betrayal and death, he said this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus died a real death. And Jesus suffered true separation, true hell under the wrath of God directed at sin. So this statement certifies that not only was his death necessary to satisfy the justice of God, but that Jesus was the perfect substitute for you and for me. The sinless Christ, the eternal Son of God, suffered the full onslaught of hell's fury because of God's wrath. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. From the beginning of recorded human history, God has stipulated that the penalty for sin for disobedience, for, for seeking to live independently of the creator, for missing the mark of God's perfection, was death. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they died. Yes, physical death began into the creation, but more significantly, eternal death, spiritual death began. And that's why the apostle Paul can write to the Romans and says, for the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty that must be extracted because of sin, and that's death. In the days of the Old Testament, this is the reason why God instructed the people of Israel to offer sacrifices, blood sacrifices for their sin. And what that did is it covered over their sin until the perfect sacrifice could come. And so Paul would write, in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son for this purpose of dying. I wonder if sometimes one reason why we often struggle to understand the sacrifice of Christ is because we really don't know how terrible sin is. We're really not aware of how it so offends God, this holy, righteous God. We don't understand the necessity of God's wrath against sin. And so we stumble over trying to reconcile God's holiness and God's love. And many Christians put these two attributes of God into an adversarial relationship. How could God ever do this? If he's loving, how could he ever punish sin? But we can't dissect God that way. God is loving and holy. He's loving and just. Those two work in perfect harmony in the being of God. 
You see, it's at the cross where these two attributes intersect, God's justice and his holiness. We just think or hope that God will be like some nice parent who just overlooks wrongdoing. After all, we're just all human. Uh, you know, as long as there's a little remorse, uh, there, there's maybe we can wring out a tear of contriteness or something. Your know, life can just move on. But that's not so in God's economy. The writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is God's desire, God's plan. Let me sum it up this way. Jesus went to the cross for you. It's called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. You see, he died not just for you, he died in your place. I think this is what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, he that is God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I don't understand that. I'll be really honest with you. That somehow Jesus, the sinless Christ, became sin. He became your sin. He became my sin. All of my sin, all of your sins put on Christ. He's dying in our place. God pours out his wrath on him. What an amazing thing. But as believers, the truth of the scripture is that we died with Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we've died with Christ. We are identified in his death as if we were put onto the cross with him and God's wrath was then poured out upon us and has been perfectly satisfied in Christ. So Paul writes, Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. So what's the takeaway of this whole thing? I, I think it's in terms of application. First, we have to understand the truth that scripture teaches us about Christ taking our sin, what that means. But then we need to understand that since we've died to sin, having died with Christ, we are to stop living as those under the control of sin. Our lives should be different. They must be different. If we really understand our identity in Christ, we don't live under the power, under the condemnation, under the control of sin, all because of Christ. And it's his blood sacrifice that makes it possible. Um, so as you go through this Passion Week, think about that. Why it was so important that there's a cross. Why it's so important that Jesus had to die. It's his blood sacrifice that makes it possible. The shed blood of Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin in our lives and the eternal judgment that belonged to each of us. And listen, it's all because of God's grace. You didn't have a thing to do with it. You don't have a thing to do with it. It's the grace of God. That's the timeless message of a hymn wrote, written over 100 years ago. In fact, it was in 1910. The title of the hymn was Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Look at the words. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within 
Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's say it, shall we? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Now, we're going to leave today on a bummer, right? I mean, let's, let's admit, this part of the, this isn't the exciting part. Well, it is exciting, but it's not a very fun part of the creed to be at this point. But see, what comes after Good Friday? Easter. Easter. And next week, we'll dive into the next several statements because it's not going to only declare the resurrection of Jesus, this historical act of God, for which, honestly, there's no other reasonable explanation unless you totally deny the possibility of supernatural. So we have to start with his resurrection, but then we need to go on and see what's the implication. Where does Jesus go, and what does that mean to you and me? It's tremendous truth that we have to look at next week on Easter Sunday. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Uh, as we have this reminder going into Passion Week of, of what it cost for you to love us so much, that you would give your only son with his willing consent to die for us, that we might be made alive in him. Thank you, Father, for your sacrifice through your son, Jesus. Thank you for what that means in our own lives and what it has to mean. And Lord, may we then live out the truth that we've died in Christ. We are dead to sin and made alive in Christ. May that be the story of our lives this week. And this I ask in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.